Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. We're so glad that you can be with us as we open the word of God together. Maybe you are our first-time listener and are new to this broadcast. Over the next hour, we take phone calls that people uh, call us up and they have a question about the Bible or looking for a biblical counsel uh, as it relates to their personal life and ministry or family. And if we can help, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us. Again, locally, the number is 525-1859. We have a lot of people who listen through the Internet. We're grateful to God for that instrument that he's given us to be able to expand our outreach and broadcast and the toll-free number for those who'd like to use it is 877 the call letters wagp 980 or you can email us here directly into the studio and we get email questions each week that come in and the email address is tbl that stands for the bible line tbl at wagp dot net And when you call, you can remain anonymous, you can dictate your question, or you can go on live, and uh, we're happy to receive it however you'd like to give it. Indeed we do, and we do have a live caller now. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. Uh, My question is concerning the blood moon. I just read an article in a magazine about blood moon, and was going to ask Dr. Brogy if he thinks there's any significance to a blood moon in pre-tribulation times. Um, it's a good question, and my answer simply would be no. Uh, it makes for good book sales. It makes for dramatic preaching. But is there any significance? No. Now, I know a popular preacher, John Hagee, has tried to uh, make a big deal out of the four blood moons, but there's only one reference to the blood moon, whether it's quoting the Old Testament text directly or whether um, it's in the, you know, the New Testament discourse. So, for instance, Jesus said in Matthew 24, where we find the Olivet Discourse, and he said it very succinctly and very plainly, he said, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, uh, and the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. In the parallel text, when you read it in Luke's gospel, it also talks about the moon being turned to blood, blood color. So you have references to the prophet Ezekiel, and you can see if you're using the New American Standard, it's in a change of typeset, and so it tells you it's an Old Testament quote and tells you where it's coming from. And so the Lord makes this prophecy, quoting the Old Testament, And he dictates it immediately after the tribulation of those days. The tribulation period is seven years. And after the great tribulation period, uh, this is when this prophecy will take place. And of course, it commences the physical, literal return of Jesus from heaven to earth. Hagee tries to make a point that there have been other times in human history when there have been four blood moons recorded in a, you know, a year period and that 
indeed uh, great events have happened. Some of the conclusions that he makes, he's really kind of pressing, and it doesn't work perfectly all the way through. But again, that's a stretch, and it's extra biblical to come to that conclusion because there's nothing in Scripture that speaks of four blood moons that relates to a specific prophetic fulfillment. The only reference we have to the blood moon in Scripture is in reference to Christ's second coming to the earth. And of course, the great tribulation uh, happens after the catching up or the rapture of the church. Now, does that mean that something significant could not happen in this year when we are supposed to see uh, four blood moons? Um, No, that doesn't mean something significant couldn't happen. Something great could happen prophetically. But is there a biblical basis to say that it has to happen during this four blood moon period? No. And And I think the danger we have when we try to Uh, make an issue out of something that the Bible does not clearly speak to is that very often later we are then discredited. And so let's just say for the sake of argument, nothing of great prophetic significance happens in these, you know, four blood moon periods. Uh, What happens? Well, people will say, well, you know, guys like Hagee, they'll say, you know, we've, we've heard these guys before and it tends to discredit uh, just general prophetic preaching um, as pastors are supposed to give it from the pulpit. Uh, people write us off because, um, you know, they say, well, you guys are always making these predictions and nothing ever seems to happen. Uh, in 1988, there was a book written, 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come by 1988. And he set a date and everything. And my Christians were enamored by the whole thing. And and the guy made millions of dollars, by the way, selling his books. I mean, it was huge, the sales that he made. Um, but it didn't happen. And I, I still remember on ABC News and the evening news watching Peter Jennings, and he just made a big joke of it. And then in more recent years, we had the a president of Family Radio, who's you know very questionable in a lot of his theology, and he made predictions, and he had families, Christian, evangelical families all across the country, selling everything they have um, because of his you know prediction that uh, we're this was it, this was the end, and of course the time went, and that was not the first time, that was the second time he did it. And after the first time, he said, "Well, I made a miscalculation," and and he came back and readjusted it, and you know, years later, and people bought into it, and very naively, it sells books, it sells books. And John Hagee, I, I thank God for him, and that he is a gospel preaching pastor, but he does have some questionable, questionable theology in some areas. For instance, um, he, he takes a view on the Jewish people in terms of almost automatically being saved and that when Jesus comes, they just recognize that he's Messiah. Well, they're not automatically saved. They have to believe on the Lord Jesus just like any Gentile does in this age if they're going to go to heaven. Just because they are chosen as a nation does not mean that everyone in that nation goes to heaven any more than in the Old Testament because God chose Israel out of Egypt, that everyone who came out of Egypt by the Passover lamb was automatically saved because we know from the scriptures that uh, many in that group of millions of people, there was represented a mixed multitude. And many actually were literally swallowed up into the judgment of God in the rebellion of Korah. 
So just being a descendant of Abraham didn't automatically guarantee salvation any more in the Old Testament age than it did in Christ's day, which was a problem that Jesus would repeatedly address, than it does in our day. And uh, again, that makes you chummy with Jewish people in Israel when you go, as Hagee often does, but that does them a disservice to make them think that everything's okay. Um, and he says, well, you know, you, we're going to meet each other in heaven and you will recognize that Jesus is the Savior. Well, it is true that the Jewish people are going to turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, but they still have to do that individually. And, um, it, and right now, if a Jewish person dies without Jesus, they die lost. So Hagee has some very questionable theology in, in some areas. But again, I thank God that he has the gospel and he's preaching it. And God alone can measure motive, and I, and I thank the Lord that people have found Christ through his ministry. Good question. Let's go to the next call, or I think someone's waiting. Indeed they are. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning. This is Joy from Virginia, the Herrings. Oh, hey, Joy. Nice to hear your voice today. It's good to hear you. And that I have a question um, about a book. I'm not sure that you may be familiar with it, but our our young people have, or someone in our church has chosen to use this book for our young people for a study on Sunday morning Sunday school, and I'm not real crazy about the book, and I just want your opinion about the book. It's called Every Young Woman's Battle by Shannon Etheridge, and there's also a, a counterpart of Every Young Man's Battle, which they're using for middle schoolers, and the book is quite graphic, and I, I'm not I'm not crazy about them using this in, in this age group. And I just wonder if you had an opinion on that book. Well, I know the male component of the book, and they've obviously adjusted it for a younger audience, but the male component of the book is very graphic. Um, the one that was originally written, Every Man's Battle for Adult Men, and to me is not, uh, not in, in sync with biblical principles any more than, you know, a, a current popular pastor up in the Northwest wrote a book on, you know, sexual activity among married couples, and he's extremely graphic and introduces things that, to me, were really flavored by his past pornographic lifestyle that he had adopted for years, and so is quick to say that, well, you know, this generation of Christians are you know, ready for these truths. And we can talk about things, some things that are just absolutely just wrong. Um, But again, I I think he's tainted by it. And I think the same is true with that author. I've not read the one by his wife, so I can't comment on it specifically. But if it's anything like what her husband wrote, then I would say it's inappropriate, especially for middle schoolers, because you're introducing them too evil. Now, the argument would go like this, Joy, as you can imagine. People would say, well, we've got all these middle schoolers who are exposed to pornography who are into porn on the internet, and so we need to reach them and meet them where they're at. And that's that, I think, is wrong. Um, we need to maybe address individual young men who are engaged in the internet pornography field, and we need to warn young men who have not been involved in it, but we don't need to go into specifics and details and and soil people's minds who have not soiled them because of good choices they've made or protective measures that their parents have taken. 
So I think it's very unwise. Um, and again, people would call me prudish for this. And, um, you know, we've adopted a, a form of thinking in our day that, that no one would ever discuss. You know, can you imagine a pastor, say, like um, John MacArthur talking about um, intimacies with his wife from the pulpit? I, I, I just can't conceive that. I can't conceive that of other respected pastors I know. There, there are, you know, the, the, what takes place in the bedroom is a holy thing, and you don't share it with the general public. And yet we have pastors in our day who are doing this very thing. And so when you have one book, Every Man's Battle, and it sells, then let's, uh, let's, let's go ahead and morph it out into many kinds of different editions. Every young woman's battle, every woman's battle, every young man's battle. Um, it's just like, um, you know, Jesus Calling. And now they've morphed that out into numerous types of editions and audiences because it sells, but the theology absolutely stinks in it. It's horrible. But we lack discernment in our day. And again, were people just naive for 20 centuries in church history where they saw, look, there are some things that are just inappropriate to discuss in public? No, I think what's happened is we've been so soiled in the last days and so tainted um, by lifestyle choices that Christian people are making that we just adopted as normal. And I, and I think that's wrong. So I wouldn't allow my child to go to a Sunday school class where they were discussing those kinds of issues. I, I just wouldn't do it. That's something the parent should train his child on, and, and not in a graphic way. Whenever God discre- d- discusses, even in the scripture, sexual activity, he does it in a very careful way so that even a child reading the Holy Scripture is not going to be tantalized or anything else by the way God describes that activity. So anyway, I appreciate the question. Thanks, Joy from Virginia, for calling. Let's go to the next caller. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. And we do have a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, Dr. Brogy. Just wanted to say, first of all, I thank God for your ministry. Uh, it's been a real blessing in my life. I'm a caller here from South Carolina. Uh, Today being primary day, I was calling to get some wisdom from you. you know, there's a lot of uh, good races going on, some tough, uh, tough decisions to make. Was kind of curious where you where you stood on the lieutenant governor race. I'm not sure if uh, you'd have anything to say on that one or. Just well, I appreciate the question. Yeah, no, thank you for the question. I already voted this morning. Um, and, you know, sometimes people, by the way, if you're listening, I know there are thousands and thousands of people listening. If you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to get out and to vote. This is really important. And if this were a presidential election and I voted at 815 this morning at my polling, then there would be huge lines. There would have been already maybe 200 people who had voted. When I went in at 815, three people had voted. And I've voted in many of these off elections, so this one is not as off as other smaller elections are, where sometimes I've gone on at the end of the day, at the end of the polling day, and 10 people have voted. We're in a presidential election in that same primary poll, uh, over a thousand people would, would have voted at that one location. So Christians can really make a difference. 
so I, I voted. You know, I, I don't mind telling you who I voted for. I voted for Debt Bowers for U.S. Senate. Uh, I don't think Lindsey Graham is an evil man or anything like that, and he's done a lot of good things, but I do think he compromised himself in some Supreme Court selections, and every single person, if anyone watched the debate last week that was on South Carolina Public TV that's running against him, that was their primary beef, that if some Supreme Court justice is not indeed truly pro-life, then I don't care who the president is, you shouldn't rubber stamp the president's choice. And we need some people in this day with some backbone who will stand up for those things. For lieutenant governor, I voted for Ray Moore. And the reason I voted for Ray Moore for lieutenant governor is because he's done more to help promote Christian and uh, both Christian schools and home-based education than any other single person I know in the state of South Carolina. And he's certainly one of the leaders nationally who has done that. And the lieutenant governor position is kind of interesting in South Carolina because we vote in this state separately for the governor and lieutenant governor. As most people know, in most states, that's a combined ticket. And it appears this may be the last time where that happens. But to me, the lieutenant governor position is very important because if indeed uh, a Republican administration comes in in the next election in 16 – Uh, Our current governor, many view as a very potential person for a cabinet position, in which case the the lieutenant governor would become governor. So to me, this is like very important, but it's very important, too, just in terms of the role that the lieutenant governor plays. And E. Ray Moore, he's a great godly man, loves Christ, uh, bronze medal recipient, articulate in his thought and thinking, and I think would represent the Christian community and the Lord well. And we need people from that stature in the day that we live in. To me, any office is important. If I can vote for someone with moral backbone, he's running for, you know, dog catcher, I'm going to, I'm going to vote accordingly. Anyway, um, I appreciate that question. Let's go to our next caller. Who's, uh, called in or dictated a question. 525-1859 is the number. They have indeed dictated their question. They would like your opinion on the Roman Catholic Church and the fact that they teach that they are the true church because they have a direct line going back to the apostles. Well, I think their their basis for this argument is extremely weak, and it's not one that you can really justify uh, from Scripture. Uh, The argument comes from an encounter that the Lord Jesus had at Caesarea uh, Philippi, um, where it's an interesting place. And if you've been to Israel, it's interesting that the Lord at this particular spot would ask this question, because it's a spot where this plethora of different gods and deities uh, were honored and represented. And if you go there today, you can still see some of the remains of where these gods and their statues hung and so forth or, or were carved into the side of the, the rock formation. So it was there that Jesus said, who do people say the son of man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And their answers are interesting because Indeed, uh, the Bible spoke of the forerunner of Messiah. And so some said, well, you're the forerunner of Messiah, but not Messiah. Some said you're Elijah because the Bible in the book of Malachi speaks of the second coming of Elijah. Elijah is going to come again. 
um, not in the same way Christ will, but as a forerunner uh, to the final second coming of Christ. And so, of course, Peter steps up and he says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and he said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own, but my father who is in heaven. And then he makes this statement, and I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, the point of argument comes, in essence, from verse 18, where he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The way the Roman Catholic Church interprets this verse is they would paraphrase it in this way. I say that you are Peter, a rock, and upon this rock, meaning Peter, I will build my church. And they do that because the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church is not the Greek New Testament, but it's the Latin Vulgate translation that was done in the 4th century by Jerome. And so in Latin, there's not two distinct words as there are in the Greek New Testament. In virtually any English Bible that has footnotations, footnote or marginal notes, will usually bring this out if there's some play on words that's going on in the Greek text. And so if you have the New American Standard, for instance, with footnotes, it says, you are Petros, a stone, And upon this Petra goes to the feminine form, this large rock or bedrock, I will build my church. So in the Greek New Testament, it's crystal clear that he's not calling Peter the rock upon whom the church is built. He's saying, Peter, you're a stone. And upon this bedrock, referring to himself, the cornerstone that the prophets of old had spoken of, I will build my church. And again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And so throughout the New Testament, you see this imagery quoting the Old Testament where this was described of, indeed, the Christ, of the Messiah. Paul will, for instance, say in 1 Corinthians 3 that no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the bedrock. He's the cornerstone. The church is not built on a man. It's built on Christ. It's built built on the God-man. And then they take the verse that follows, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And so they would say that Peter, as the first pope since the church is built on him, was given the authority of the keys, and he passes those keys down to each successive pope. And and so we have the current pope, who is, in essence, God's living representative. And so the Roman Catholic Church would argue that whenever the Pope speaks ex cathedra, that is from his chair, on an issue of faith and morals, that he speaks from the same authority as the Bible. And this became an issue during the Reformation. Now, what are keys for? Keys are to open doors. And indeed, Peter, though not the first Pope, and if he was the first Pope, he didn't know anything about it, because when he writes uh, in his first letter, in First Peter chapter 5, he describes himself as a fellow elder. Um, he, he doesn't see himself in some high and lofty position. And interestingly, even at the Jerusalem Council, Peter is not leading 
uh, James, uh, the half-brother of Christ, is leading the Jerusalem Council. And if Peter's the first pope, then Paul had no right of rebuking him right to his face, as Galatians records. But he's not the first pope. He is an important player. He's a great leader in the early church, and we don't take that away from him. But he's not the first pope. But he's given, indeed, a privilege. He's given the keys to open the door. And he has opened the door, of course. He's the first one to stand up on the day of Pentecost to preach the gospel to the Jew. He is the one who gives affirmation with the other apostles to the Samaritan conversion. And he's the first one ever to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are introduced to Jesus as Lord, as seen in Acts chapter 10. So he's given great privilege, but he's not the first pope. So um, this became the issue of the Protestant Reformation. Is there authority outside of the Bible? And the Roman Catholic answer would say yes, that the pope speaks on the same level of authority. And so in the 1850s, for instance, though it had been a tradition for many centuries saying that Mary was immaculately conceived. Now, when we use the term immaculate conception as evangelicals, we're not using it in reference to Mary, but to the Lord Jesus. We're saying that, that, that the Lord Jesus was immaculately conceived. Why? Because he didn't have a human father. But they use the term and they extend it to Mary and they say Mary was sinless. Well, Mary was not sinless. She had a sin nature like the rest of us. Everyone out of Adam was a sinner. And so the need for a miraculous birth where God, the Holy Spirit came in and uh, by his supernatural conception uh, added sinless humanity to eternal deity in the, in the Lord Jesus. But Mary was a sinner. She acknowledges that in Luke two in the Magnificat in her, in her song of praise, when she says, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. But the Roman Catholic Church officially declared in the 1850s, I think it was 1853, if I remember, that Mary was sinless. And then five years later, they said that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. There are seven feast days in the Roman Catholic Church. One of those feast days is the Assumption of Mary. It's a holy day of obligation where if you are a good Catholic, you have to go to church on that day. You must attend Mass. What is the assumption of Mary? They were saying that Mary was literally, physically, actually assumed into heaven. And that became an official doctrine in 1858 in the Roman Catholic Church. Well, that's beyond the bounds of Scripture. So in Luther's 95 Theses, or assertions, not thesis, but a thesis, which an assertion, a statement, He made 95 statements where he said, this is what the church says. This is what the Bible says. So if the church says that Mary was sinless, the Roman Catholic Church, and the Bible says she was a sinner, he said, sola scriptura. Scripture must be our final authority. If the church says that Mary was a perpetual virgin, when the Bible says, no, Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, and then her actual children, some of them are named the brothers of Jesus and sisters, and they're actually, their names are given, but again, the explanation in the Roman Catholic Church over that verse is in the Latin translation, brother could mean cousin, and so you can skirt around it, but not in the Greek New Testament. And so the scripture must be our final authority. 
and the Catholic Church diminishes that uh, by their view of the Pope and the ongoing papal authority that is passed down from generation to generation. So I, I don't buy that. I don't ascribe to it. I think it's just wrong, and you have to ultimately decide what you're going to do. To me, even the current Pope compromised himself last week when he had this prayer meeting and you know, he had a Muslim prayer and he had a Jewish prayer and he had a Christian prayer. And look, that's nonsense. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Um, so look carefully, see what's going on in our day, but ultimately look to the scripture and evaluate the, what beliefs you make from the scripture alone. All right. 525-1859, toll free, 877 7980 or email us at tvl at wagp.net. Our next listener would like uh, you to comment on this. If two Christians were married and divorced and the wife never marries anyone else, but the husband is now married to a new wife, if he should divorce his second wife, is it scriptural for the first wife to remarry him? The answer is very definitive on this. And I don't know of any um, credible biblical scholar who would differ on this. Now, there is differences in terms of when remarriage is uh, permissible in other areas, but not on this one that you mentioned. And it's found the answer in Deuteronomy 24, where Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends it out to his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. An abomination is an evil act. And I can promise you anywhere in the Old Testament where God calls something an abomination, it's part of his moral law, it's unchanging, and it's still an abomination today. So when God says for a man to lie with an animal is an abomination, it still is. When God says for a man to lie with a man, it's an abomination, it still is. And when God says that if you're married and your husband divorces you and he goes marries someone else and then he later wants to come back to his first wife, whatever the circumstances, God says no. Why? Because then you have a legal form of adultery that can potentially take place. And God says it's an evil and that it's not to be done. So um, just go back and meditate on Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. to 4. It's really plain. And this is not one that's up for debate amongst evangelical Bible-believing Christians. But I appreciate the question because you're looking to sola scriptura, that is scripture alone, to make your decision as your authority. Let's go to the next question. All right, Angie from Bluffton writes, How would you respond to someone who believes that the biblical account of Joseph returning to Bethlehem was contrived to make Jesus fit Old Testament messianic prophecies? First, he says there are no historical accounts of a census of that time and that people did not return to their birthplaces when there were censuses. Well, again, it comes down to an issue of authority. 
is the Bible authoritative? If the Bible is authoritative, it doesn't matter what history writes or does not write about the particular issue. Uh, The foremost scholar on Middle Eastern geography and culture in the 20th century was a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. He was a Nobel Prize winner. He was a teacher at Aberdeen in Scotland. And Dr. Ramsey, for many years, was critical of Christianity and the Bible. But from time to time, he would come up with some of the accounts that Luke records. And, of course, you're referencing the Gospel of Luke here in Luke chapter 2. And let me just read the text because not everyone is familiar with it. It came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called the house of bread, Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Anyways, it turns out uh, Ramsey was compelled more and more to go back and study Luke. And as he studied Luke, he found out that he was one of the most accurate historians who ever wrote in the first century. He ended up writing a book, uh, Luke, the Beloved Position, and, uh, Physician. And, and he said, I, I take the view uh, and this is kind of a paraphrase, but if you read my little booklet, How to Prove the Bible is True, where I go through five proofs for the authority of Scripture, he, he says, I take the position, I take the view that Luke's history is unsurpassed in regards to its trustworthiness. And he called Luke a historian of the first rank. And again, when you go back and you look at some of the things in the Bible, just because we can't always give an initial explanation doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. For instance, the Bible repeatedly mentions in the Old Testament the Hittite culture, and many liberal critics would use the mention of the Hittites to discredit the reliability of the Bible. Um, Forty-eight times in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hittite people are mentioned. Um, from Genesis all the way through Second Chronicles. And they would say, look, there is no Hittite people. This is no different than the uh, Nephites that the, uh, the Book of Mormon mentions. This is just some made-up, fictitious people. And then in 1876, that all changed when an archaeologist by the name of George Smith uncovered the Hittite people. Uh, now there's a whole chair at the University of Chicago dedicated to the study of the Hittite people. And we know that they were one of the most sophisticated ancient civilizations. And in the year 1806, the French Institute of Science listed 80 what they call historical, archaeological, geological inaccuracies found in the Bible. Uh, By 1940, not a single, not one, of those so-called historical inaccuracies, inaccuracies existed. They were all proven wrong, and archaeology affirmed, or historical writings affirmed, that the Bible was totally accurate. For instance, critics many times made fun of the Christian assertion that there was a governor 
by the name of Pontius Pilate because there was absolutely zero historical record anywhere of Pontius Pilate until the quote-unquote Pilate Stone, as it's called. If you go to Caesarea by the sea in Israel, you'll see an exact replica of it outside where they found it. They don't want to put the real one there because they don't want it to be weathered, and the real one is in the British Museum. Uh, But nonetheless, in 1961, they uncovered an inscription with Pontius Pilate's name on it, and they were proven wrong. So initially, when you read about this census being taken, there's several issues that come up. One is when Quirinius was governor, and some would say, well, this was impossible because Quirinius didn't fit the time frame when the census could have been taken. Uh, What they later discovered is that Quirinius was governor twice, first from about 11 to 8 B.C., and then a second time from 6 to 4 B.C. Um, So that, that problem was dismissed. When you read both Luke and Matthew's gospel accounts, they agree that the census that was taken in relationship to Joseph and his family was before the death of Herod. Um, And the great thing is, is that now through historical evidence, uh, Herod's death can really be set with a a great sense of, you know, accuracy. Uh, Josephus notes that there was an eclipse that occurred before his death. And we know that that took place in uh, 4 B.C., We also know, in addition, that Josephus notes that Passover followed his death. Um, The the eclipse took place in March of 4 BC, and the uh, death of Herod took place in April 11th of 4 BC. Um, So, again, that's when Passover was, and Josephus notes that Passover followed his death. So we have a time frame, and it fits the biblical account perfectly. In addition, we know also from historical writings of the day that Augustus instituted three great censuses in his time. And so, again, the chronology fits. And, and let me just say, in reference to your, um, your friend here who's questioning this idea of Joseph returning to Bethlehem, uh, we, we don't have a specific text that would indicate that, but again, when the Bible records something, if the Bible overall can be proven as true, there's nothing that would go against this. It's just like there was nothing that went against the fact that there was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate who existed. But he existed. The Bible recorded it, and Christians believed <laughs> for centuries because because the Bible was shown to be a reliable historical text. It had never been proven wrong on any scientific, historical, or geographical issues. And so they assumed it to be true. Well, archaeology in 1961 ultimately affirmed it to be true. So Joseph returning to Bethlehem might be explained in the principle that sometimes the Romans would allow a census to be taken on the behalf of a local custom which in Jewish culture would require you to go to your place of ancestry. And there are other examples where the Roman government um, allowed the Jews to keep their customs. For instance, every seven year, they were exempt from paying the tax. And so in the seventh year, 
they didn't pay their taxes to the Roman government. They spread them out over six years, and they recognized that Jewish custom, and they honored it. And you'll read many of those things. You know, even when the Lord Jesus died, and they they want to get the bodies off of the crosses before the high and holy Sabbath begins. Uh, And Pilate recognized that, and he granted permission for that. So, again, we may not always uh, have a document outside of the Bible that confirms everything that we read. But there's nothing outside of the Bible that would discount what Luke has written. And Luke is considered by many even secular historians of the day to be one of the most profound accurate historians from the first century. So that's how I would answer it. Um, What might be helpful, and I deal with some of these issues in my book, How to Prove the Bible is True. And I think that might be helpful uh, for someone to read if they've never read it. You can go on Amazon, get it there, or locally at our bookstore here on our campus. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got a live caller standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thanks for calling. Yes, uh, Dr. Brogy, um, could you um, kind of elaborate on um, who Melchizedek was? Because there's, according to the scriptures, there's no record of his being born or lineage, and uh, more in particular of a certain passage um, I was reading this morning, Hebrews 5, verse 5, um, yes. five, 5 and 6. So it's chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, that speak to Jesus being in the order of Melchizedek. Um, I'll hang up and just listen out there. Thanks for taking my call. It's a good question. And um, for this caller, what I might also direct you to is to search the scriptures, all one word, uh, searchthescriptures.org. And when I've preached through a book of the Bible, then that Bible is uh, up there on the website. And if you click on Hebrews... Um, you will see all the messages that I preached in the book of Hebrew and I, Hebrews, and I went through every single verse in the book of Hebrews. Um, and if you are listening to me today, not only does this radio station have an app uh, that you can put on your smartphones, but Search the Scriptures does as well. And people all the time are commenting to me how helpful that is to them and many of their friends who live in different states who are hungry to learn the Bible and that they can click on a particular message or a passage they're studying that they have questions concerning. And, um, and, and so th- this, uh, this app can be a great tool. Um, in Hebrews chapter 5, the Lord is by the writer to the Hebrews, and we don't know who it was. I can tell you who it was not, but I can't tell you for sure who it was. But nonetheless, he is showing the superiority of Christ uh, here in the first section of the book. And he shows how the priesthood of Christ is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, and that Christ comes after another order of priests. And so, for instance, you mentioned Hebrews 5, 5, and 6. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he says in another passage, You are a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying to the one who is able to save him out of death and so forth. And so he's dictated here 
as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is further described as without a genealogy, without a historical record. And he just kind of uh, mysteriously appears on the pages of Scripture in uh, the book of Genesis when Abraham defeats a very a number of kings. And you read about him in, in Genesis 14 where uh, Abraham gives a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek, the priest. And, and again, it, it's not by accident that the fact that his lineage is not mentioned. Now, some would say, and there are two positions on who Melchizedek is. Some would say that this is a Christophany, that, um, that the Lord Jesus, prior to his incarnation, Uh, at Bethlehem, where we see his birth recorded, prophesied by the Old Testament, but actualized in time and space, as the New Testament record gives us, that they would say before the incarnation that there was a time when Jesus would appear. And there are times when he appears as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And no one really disputes that. And the angel of the Lord, it never appears again after after Bethlehem and not by accident. If someone wants to explore the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, he's not just an ordinary angel. Uh, The word angelos means a messenger, malek in Hebrew, both languages, it means a messenger. And God would send this special messenger who's also called Yahweh uh, in the Old Testament. So there's an angel who comes who's called God. But um, Abraham, if you remember, he, uh, he meets Melchizedek And we're told this in Genesis 14, that after his return from the defeat of Shurdamalior and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh and so forth. And and it says in Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies from your hand. And so, again, um, when you come to Hebrews chapter 6, he is mentioned again. Uh, He's mentioned not only in Hebrews 5, but Melchizedek, who's called King of Salem, um, Jerusalem, Uh, he's King of Peace. And he's mentioned again in the, by the writer of the Hebrews. And by the way, if you're new to the Bible and you're, you come across some name in the New Testament and your sense is, oh, well, this must be about the Old Testament because I know Abraham is in the Old Testament. And so I need to find out where this is and what this is all about. Then you can usually look into cross references and it will give you some different details. And so, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 7, it says that Melchizedek, uh, let me just read to you, it says, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth of all of his spoils. Um, And he gave it to Melchizedek, who by the translation of his name means king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. And when he describes Melchizedek, he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God. He abides a priest perpetually. 
So some would say he's a type of Christ. I don't, uh, I mean, excuse me, a a pre-incarnation appearance of Christ, but it doesn't appear that from the historical record, and nor does it appear that way from the way he's described here in Hebrews 7. He's without father, without mother, not in the sense that he didn't have a dad and mom, and that could not be said of Christ. Christ had a human mother, but it could be said of Melchizedek. Because his father and his mother are not recorded on the pages of Holy Scripture. And so in that sense, he's without father and without mother. He's without genealogy. We don't know anything of his background. And, um, and yet Christ has a specific genealogy. He has to come from the tribe of Judah. And he has to come from the family of David. But he's like Christ in the sense that uh, because he is pictured as having no beginning or end and a perpetual priest, Christ is in a different priesthood, superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He's according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek becomes a type or an illustration of the Lord Jesus. And of course, Jesus said, the scriptures speak of me. Anyway, that's the short answer. But what you might want to do is listen especially to the sermon on Hebrews 7, where I kind of put all the Melchizedek passages together and uh, examine them carefully. But there's a lesson here sometimes even for tithing, because people would say, well, tithing has no application for today. When Melchizedek gave either to a pre-incarnate Christ, as some would argue, a tenth, or he gave to one who is a type of Christ. Uh, which is the position I would take. In either case, he gave a tenth ever before Moses even commanded the whole issue of tithing. So tithing was something that was practiced ever before the law was instituted and not by accident because it's part of God's eternal moral law that he has for his people. Now, we're not limited to the tithe by any stretch. Giving is not simply an issue of percentages. It's ultimately an issue of the heart. And so God speaks of the Jewish people, Malachi, of robbing him not only of the tithe, but also of the offering. So sometimes in our sensitivity to the Lord, we can rob God of the offering and that he calls us to give above and beyond the tithe to our local church. And he asks us to give an offering, maybe to our local church or some other ministry. But the tithe does belong, by the way, to the local church. But we need to be sensitive so that if God would have us to give above and beyond a tithe— that we do just what he says. Ultimately, we'll give an account for how we handle all of the money. But there's a lot of rich lessons, and I'm getting off on a rabbit trail, but there's a lot of rich lessons that can be learned from Melchizedek. And I'll highlight some of those in the Hebrews 7 uh, sermon that you can get at searchthescriptures.org. All right, 525-1859. We've got about four and a half minutes left in today's program. And a listener heard your program and comment last week where you made a reference to WAGP dropping the Moody Broadcasting Network, and they were curious as to why that is. Well, the Elder Board of Community Bible Church, which also serves legally as the radio board of WAGP since its inception, uh, voted to leave the Moody Broadcast Network. And we are in process now of doing that very thing. Uh, Why do we do it? Uh, And by the way, the broadcasting will virtually change zero. Let me just say that nothing's going to change. You can get any speaker that you want on the Moody Broadcasting Network through a number of satellites. In fact, Rick, there's people that aren't played on Moody that we download, correct? That is correct. Give Uh me an example. 
Oh, well, let's see. We have um, primetime. Uh, uh, point of view. I mean, point of view. Yep. That's mm-hmm. not a moody broadcast, but we download that through a satellite. Right. Uh, uh, Janet Medford show on Saturday. Janet Medford. And more recently, the pastor from Atlanta mm-hmm. that. Um, yep. Um, Michael Youssef. Dr. Michael Youssef. He's, he was once on Moody many years ago, but Moody dropped him. Uh, and by the way, he's a great pastor. And they've they've hit some real hardship in their church um, in a brief way and not in a monumental way. But um, one of the things that Dr. Youssef said, I'm not going to do is I'm not going to compromise on the issue of homosexuality. And so Andy Stanley's mega church in Atlanta will baptize homosexuals with their homosexual partner standing by watching. Listen, that that's endorsing evil. And that's wrong. Um, so, Dr. Youssef, we affirm him, but we dropped Moody very simply because they wrote a um, staff policy that applies to all of their workers, whether they're a professor at the Moody Bible Institute or a janitor or works for Moody Radio, um, that basically says you have freedom to gamble, to drink, and to smoke within moderation. So they take what's become more and more a popular Christian view that it's okay to drink, uh, smoke, you know, I mean, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit, but if you want an occasional cigar, fine. Gamble, well, you know, recreationally. And, and so they took that position, which I think is a very foolish position. Number one, it goes against many of the speakers that they have on their radio station that they broadcast nationally. Um, David Jeremiah is against all use of alcohol. John MacArthur is against all use of alcohol, not by accident. Carl Brogy is as well. I don't think you should smoke. Uh, that's popular. So we've got a major reform guy who loves to smoke, and now he can't leave his house because he's hooked up to oxygen. And he taught this for many years. He can't, tr- well, I, I shouldn't say he can't leave his house, but he can't really leave his city because of what he's done to his body. And gambling, well, you know, one of their board members came out in the Wall Street Journal and said, well, you know, I lost $8,000 gambling in Vegas, but that's just chump change. And he later apologized for that. But, you know, I think there are some things driving this. Not to mention that they are a school that is trying to highlight young men and women going into the ministry. And most of the mission agencies in this church, Community Bible Church, supports hundreds of missionaries monthly, financially. And virtually all of the mission agencies that these young men and women will apply to have a policy against both the use of alcohol and tobacco. Gambling is just a given. They don't even address that. Uh, They don't have to. So I think Moody, and they're doing this in order to attract more sophisticated thinkers to their school have actually sown seed for disaster and set a lot of their students up for problems. Because when they apply to these mission agencies, well, you can't drink or smoke. Well, that's not what we learned at Moody. They allow their faculty to do it and their staff. So, yes, I, I, I just couldn't continue with them because of that. And so you will see us in a short time leave the Moody Broadcast Network, but it will change nothing in terms of the speakers you hear and the programming that we bring. We just won't be uh, promoting uh, Moody-produced publications and and the like. And I hope they'll change their view, but I doubt it right now. We're out of time. Thanks for being with us. 